Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Johannes Selbach on the show today of Selbach Oster. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, Levi. I'm fine. Um, enjoying the nice weather here in New York City. Nice to have you here. Pleasure. So, I mean, you've uh, had a long career, often with an engagement to the United States, which is uh, at a level that's a little bit rare for German winemakers. How did you first uh, come to move to the United States or to find the United States? Long story, going back to my mother's youth. She was an exchange student uh, in Ashtabula County, Ohio, near Lake Erie in 1953. And she spent a year on a farm that was growing grapes, Concord and Catawba, to make juice and jelly. Uh, she had a wonderful year. She fell in love with the United States and transplanted that seed into her marriage and her kids. So in 1973, she went for her 20th uh, class reunion and she took my father, my next brother, myself along. We were 14 and 12 years at that time and uh, it was like great starting in New York City and then going to Washington DC, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Ohio, Niagara Falls and then the farm in Ohio. We just had a great, great, great time and made friends with the next generation of the family and that basically uh, laid the foundation to a long-lasting friendship relationship until now. Um, next step was in 83, 1983, with a couple of friends. We were in university and we had a long summer break, so we decided we'd take an adventure trip to the United States. Went over with a small budget and backpacks and um, flew People Express. People may not remember that, but in those days it was the first low-cost carrier to Pittsburgh where we boarded old beat up uh, Ford Granada and we took that from coast to coast and from Canada to uh, Mexico and brought it back to the dealer and had a fantastic time uh, camping out, meeting people and really seeing the different faces of the United States, the different landscapes and, and just had a great time and that was another nail in that board to say I want to come back and that opportunity arose in 1984 with a scholarship that I applied for and got uh, to go to Penn State to write my master's thesis and that master's thesis theme was marketing German wines in the United States then one thing leads to another I had a wine crazy professor who uh, really opened many doors for me uh, wrote recommendation letters so I got a lot of appointments for like a field study and that in turn made me interesting for a PR firm in New York City who, amongst other things, had the German wine account and they hired me. <laughs> and how so, long did you work with them? Uh, short of two years. Uh, that was in 1985. Then I went back to Germany uh, to graduate, came back in 86 and spent the whole year, 87, working here. Um, at the time, it was a difficult call whether I would go home or stay because I really liked it over here, but I had a girlfriend and... Uh, soon to be my wife, as it turned out. And there was an opening, so to speak, at home because my father's sister, my, my godmother, who doesn't have any children, uh, kind of let me in on a, on a very good deal uh, to buy into her shares. And that was the beginning of my becoming a partner in Selbach Holstein and JNH Selbach. And ever since, you know, I've come back on a regular basis because the U.S. has been and still is our largest market outside of Germany. 
So it's kind of an interesting progression because before you took over the estate that you run now, uh, the family winery, you had a, a glimpse of what a very important export market was like and the difficulties of selling German wine there, which during the 80s were probably pretty substantial. Uh, in the 80s, it was still the heydays. I still remember, and I caught the tail end of it, where every store had a case stack of German wines and where German wines were on every wine list, and they were a big big deal at the time. That was pre-Bottles and James and pre-Bottles you know, the mixed coolers, not just the grape wine coolers, and then certainly pre-White Zinfandel. And like with many things, if you eat too much of one thing or drink too much of one thing, people get bored. And uh, I think it was uh, time for German wines, also for renewal. And that renewal came with a big bang because we had a couple of scandals in Germany and that coincided with Bottles and James. And you remember this rocking chair? with I uh, do. With Thank you for your support. And, right. <laughs> and... Then came White Zinfandel, and between those three things, German wines really, you know, fell out of favor, or people just moved on to other things, and they thought they knew what German wines were like. At the time, you may remember, there was two big brands for Liebfromage, and there was a lot of Me Too's, and maybe there was a little bit too much of one kind of wine, and people had had enough. Obviously, there was also high-quality wine, estate wines. Uh, but that was the tip of the iceberg. That was not what was on the shelf, uh, by and large, around the wine list. So the market drained to a very low level. German wines in the mid-'80s were something that people who were in the know drank, but the vast majority shunned. They thought and they're all the same. They all taste sweet and one-dimensional. And so um, it was like a purge, like a cleansing. And it took uh, a new generation of winemakers. I probably am on the now becoming old of that uh, new generation, which in the 80s uh, took an interest. And it was labor of love because you could make more money elsewhere because if you do something that's not cool and not in high demand, it's you, you need to work extra hard, which is what that new generation did. So we saw quite a change in the industry. A lot of the big players dropped out. Uh, many wineries didn't have successes. Many growers didn't have successes because the younger uh, generation said, forget it, it's it's hard work and it's not giving me enough return on investment. So we had a structural change in Germany. The acreage shrunk, the number of players shrunk. But those who got into it did it because they did it with a conviction because they loved wine and loved what they were doing. Consider myself one of them. And um, so we built it from scratch with an extra effort to produce better than average uh, quality, and there were a good number of people in the know over here who recognized this and said, "Wow, there's something happening in Germany, and we can start all over again." And here comes Terry Thies, who I met uh, when I was still a student uh, in the United States through a common friend, David Schulknecht, uh, who at so the time connected. Oh yeah, uh, he was working at Rex Liquors. I was at Penn State, Pennsylvania at those uh, times, very restrictive. Uh, state monopoly you had to point at a catalog to get a bottle uh, there was no shopping and so we drove i had a little yellow mazda we drove to dc and we bought wine at rex liquors and david consulted me and uh, sold me wine and we became friends and did tastings together and i was smuggling wine to pennsylvania and was uh, best friend with most people who liked wines there <laughs> so what was that first encounter with terry like uh, Terry was the fine wine manager as a, at a, a Washington wholesale company. Uh, I did a tasting, believe it or not, for uh, for a, a group of members of Congress who were interested in Riesling. So that was a big deal for me. And uh, I had to pick up wines from Washington-based wholesalers and put together a tasting and did the tasting. Um, and it was in the American... Uh, Committee of Jewish Affairs, and me, the young German, was doing uh, a tasting on Riesling. Great. Um, so at the end, there was some wine left over. Brought it back to Washington Wholesale. Fine wine manager Terry Fee said, "Oh, thank you very much. Here's a couple of bottles left. Uh, they're yours." And he said, "Oh, thank you very much. How did you like the wine?" And I said, "Well," he said, "Come on, uh, tell me how did you like it." I said, "If you really want to know, it was okay." And that was a wine from a famous estate, Old Guard which has fallen uh, a little bit in, in quality. And Terry lit up and said, yeah, right on. Yeah, I don't like it so much myself. And we struck up a conversation. It turned out he had lived in Germany. He loves Riesling. He knew a lot about German wines. And he said he was planning on getting into the wine business, but small 
producers seeking out individual quality and doing a lot of field work. And he was looking for a contact in Germany. And that's what we were doing in Germany. So we Because you were looking at smaller producers as well, and you were a small producer. We, we, we were a small producer. We're a negociant old style, like in Burgundy, where you don't do large volumes, but select individual barrels, basically, from reputable producers, and also from not so well-known but high-quality producers. And we were catering to the fine wine clientele in uh, gastronomy and trade. So I was the ideal, or we were the ideal match for what Terry was planning on doing. So, And we've been doing this for several generations. So we had contacts that went beyond my grandfather's time. And uh, so we could introduce Terry to a whole bunch of opportunities who he visited and tasted and made his selection. This is how Terry's estate selection started. Uh, in 1985 as, as the first business year. And ever since, number one, we've become friends. Number two, we've been doing business. And it's been great. So let's set the stage a little bit about Salbacoster. You're in the Mosul. Yes. And in terms of your own holdings, where are those vineyards and, and what distinguishes them? We're in what the English call the Golden Mile. It's longer than a mile. It's a five-kilometer stretch of river, which is in the heart of what we call Middle Mosul. The middle Mosul. Um, it starts in Bernkastel, which is our little town, then goes downstream to Grach, then downstream to Velen, and then ends in Seltingen, where the river makes a bend. And then the the good side jumps, the south-facing uh, side jumps, and then you have Urzigen Erden as, as the next stop, basically a kilometer and a half downstream. So we're smack in the middle of some of the best vineyards on the Mosul, and uh, our holdings are in Seltingen, in Velen, Grach, and in Bernkastel. So mostly slate soils, yeah. mostly Riesling. Almost entirely Riesling. It's 98.5% Riesling, and I'm toying with a little bit of Pinot Blanc. I don't know, percent and a half, it's just really uh, uh, not much. And it's slate soil, and it's all ski slope. So it's all hand labor and uh, steep and uh, a lot of old vines. And you had historical connections, as you mentioned, with other small growers in the region, searching them out and then uh, reselling those wines. Right. Kind right. of a micro-negos for the Mosul. Indeed, indeed. And then also, uh, we were, and we still are, that was something I promised my late father to continue, a broker at the auctions, at the prestigious auction, auctions in September were the best wines of the uh, VDP uh, and a couple of other organizations are auctions, which is like a big showroom of the top German wines. So that brokerage business was always in the family, still is. Because you can't just go to one of those auctions and uh, necessarily raise your hand. You have no, to work no. through. You have to work through a broker. There's a small number of brokers who can bid and we're one of them. And yeah. what, uh, your father, what, what what was he like and, and how did he grow what became your business? My father was my best friend, for one thing. He was really uh, an inspiration and um, without pushing me very early on, got me excited about wine and nature. And he was also an outdoors man. He was also very, uh, shall we say, deeply rooted in the region and, and it was a, a great person with people. Um, that also, we, I have three brothers. Uh, <laughs> we were a great team. It was absolutely fantastic. Obviously, I did not tell him at the time that I was interested in business because I detested being sent to the vineyard and slave labor. When other uh, friends were by the pool, I had to pull weeds. That's not so cool. And so in my teen years, I, I remember I was 16 when I thought, wow, this is something you want to do, but didn't tell until later after I graduated. Um, so we had a great relationship. It was a great inspiration. And he taught us to appreciate wine and not just the own wine. And since we were a mini Negos, we had wines from all over. At the time we sold some Bordeaux, we sold Burgundy to round out the Riesling that we made because we made nothing but Riesling. So we had no tunnel vision, which was great. And if you have an interest in fine wines and your appetite is whetted and you have a good guy, then of course you start digging and you know you never stop. <laughs> And so you uh, were handed the keys to the estate when? In 1988. But your dad had lived for a number of years after that. Oh, yeah. He passed away in 2005. Well, what did he think about the development of, of what was happening with the winery? We were really working hand in hand. This is something that most people wait for the Big Bang because you often have the generational conflict uh, that really didn't happen. That was that made it so 
very special because we had worked hand in hand beforehand and I really liked what he was doing. Um, it was a smooth transition. And when he, I came home from the States in 1988 and he said, okay, here, you're the front man. I'll be in the back. If you need me, ask me. Uh, I'll still be in the company and involved. And he was the owner, but he let me run it. And uh, that was a great advance of trust. And uh, obviously, that was a good start for me because I could do what I thought was right without being, you know, the big brother telling me go left, go right. And he knew he could let me do that because we had the same feeling about wine. Uh, small changes, obviously, number one, we bought vineyards. Um, he was re-energized, next generation, and as a business continuation. So uh, he was he had new ideas. Uh, Wine-wise, little changed. Uh, I was more into botrytis. He didn't like botrytis so much. So that was the only change. So we did a little more selections uh, than he would have done in the past. But we never really uh, broke with the tradition of making crisp, clear, mineral Mosel Rieslings, which weren't big and fat, and we were not in the Olympic Games, bigger, higher, faster, which is, you know, sometimes good for points, but not so good for drinking. And it sounds like both because of your exposure to the market and because of the tradition of your own family, you knew from the beginning you didn't want to do uh, low-priced, branded-out wines. You wanted to instead work uh, with small batches, small vineyards scattered through different parts of the Middle Mosul and uh, make in uh, what, what is actually a fairly, uh, there's a lot of wines in a portfolio yeah. that you make, uh, small quantities of each. Yeah. We, what is this? We were wine geeks and the wine geek inside would never permit to make something that we wouldn't like and wouldn't like to drink ourselves. So that limited what we were making and bottling so the low and cheap and sweet was out of the question and that was from grandfather to father to son we said we specialize we specialize in wines that people will love to drink and that we honestly stand behind and we leave the mass market to other people that was a smart decision because that saved us from many crises and uh, maintained a, a reputation that had no stains and that's the capital that you work with so there was a long tradition that you drew from, but at the same time, it felt like you were dealing with new challenges in terms of uh, looking at what land prices were, capitalizing on that, being a grower in the era of global warming and thinking like, hey, maybe we need to go higher up the slope. And then at the same time, you've altered uh, some of the picking uh, mm. times to make them all one time in certain vineyard plots. Maybe you could tell me about some of those changes. Yeah, the um, the changes, the structural changes with the crisis that we spoke about in the uh, early mid-80s, uh, basically put vineyards on the market which hadn't been offered for decades. That was a very closed market because nobody sold. Uh, imagine we're on steep slopes, the river is the limit at the foot of the hill and the forest on top is the limit at the top of the hill and then there is no expansion. You need to be on the south-facing slopes and so since Roman times when viticulture had its first heyday until when I started in the business there was not no growth in terms of acreage, not much. Uh, they did expand the acreage but it was in the alluvial soils where the river bends and where it's not south-facing and this is where some of the problems came from because those were planted with high-yielding hybrid grapes, which also said Mosul, but they didn't taste like Mosul. That was part of the downfall of the category in the 1960s and 70s. And they were just simple and sweet. And so if you look at the high-end Riesling suitable vineyards, there was no change and nobody sold. And you had to know somebody who knew somebody who sold something. Um, that changed in the 80s. So vineyards became available and you could actually buy and expand it. We benefited from that. And because father-son both going for it and, and, and really wanting it, we, we you know, strategically bought where we could buy. That was one thing. Comes global warming, I think the year 2000, or the, the 90s were starting to get warmer. We had more good vintages, which also helped the reputation of the category. Then the new millennium certainly saw warmer temperatures. More heat spikes, more ripeness, 2003, famous or infamous for you know many people dying from heat stress because nobody had air conditioning in, in France or in Germany, um, we realized we have to change viticultural methods. This is still with my father alive. So, you know, no more deleafing, uh, look for enough shade on the canopy, move up into the higher reaches of the slopes, go into the side valleys in order to maintain 
the grapes that give you this crisp, crunchy, low-alcohol wine that makes you salivate and that you can guzzle, i.e. cabinet. Um, and still today, we're trying to find ways to maintain a lower ripeness level, believe it or not. It's the contrary of what used to be the case some 50 years ago in order to make these, these delicate, delicious, very drinkable wines that the Mosa has become famous for. And it's much easier to make a sledgehammer these days than to make a delicate filigree wine. And one of the things I really appreciate about about your wines is that they're often quietly filigree. And I <laughs> thank you. Uh, this is what good Moser Riesling is all about. They should be cool. They should be. They should have many layers of flavor. Many of them in a, in a very fine in fine nuances. They're not about a baseball bat hitting, but rather listening to very good music in in, in many tunes. Do you see your own wines as somehow uh, benchmark or or Mosel wines? Because I do as a consumer. Who you put me on the spot? We, <laughs> in a sense, yes. I uh, carry on the tradition um, that I, I, I cherish of making these what we call typish or typical Mosel things. That's if you describe these wines, um, they have a lot of fragrance. They. Uh, they are cool, they are uh, light in color. They, When you take them in your mouth, they explode with flavor, but it's a very refreshing flavor, and they always finish with a with a zippy, mouth-watering acidity. So it's it's a refreshment if you take them in your mouth, and it's an explosion, and it lasts long in flavor, and it comes with a low alcoholic package, and that's unique. It's unique in the world of wines. You get many, many wines that are 13, 14, 15%, but you don't get so many that are 11 and below and have a mouthful of flavor. Yes. I like that, and I like fruit, but I don't like it thick and syrupy and sugary. And uh, in that sense, I try to maintain the classic style, which, and this is something the consumer often doesn't understand. There is a big difference between sugary sweet, like you pour corn syrup into soda, and naturally fruity. You pluck ripe fruit off the tree or off the vine, you bite into it, and it crackles, and you get that juice flowing in your mouth, and you get that refreshing uh, aftertaste. That's exactly what we try to capture in those fresh, young Mosa Riesling wines. And speaking of fresh and young, that's another bonus in those wines. And I'm, I'm, I'm very much, you know, looking at ageability. Even a little light cabinet should age 15 or more years with uh, pleasurable drinking. And if you go up into the Schwerdle is a late pick, the Ausle is a bunch of selection wines, it's easy 30, 40, 50 years. And in 50 years, you can drink it with great pleasure and the wine is not brown and dead. Now, when I think of another person who has a strong affinity for uh, fruity, sweet Rieslings that aren't super concentrated in terms of uh, heavy weight mm -hmm. um, and who really kind of values tradition and kind of benchmark qualities, I think of Terry. Do you think that you influenced each other's vision of what Riesling should be? Or where do you think um, the conversation went over the years that you've worked together? The good thing, and this is why we hit it home when we first met, we had the same wine philosophy. There was not so much the one was giving, the other was taking, but it was really, we had so much common ground that it was natural that we started working together. And in all those years from 1985 until now, obviously we have quarreled and we've had our disagreements, but it was over minute things. The in, color of a sweater. Yeah. <laughs> like, how can you wear that? <laughs> well, Terry wears one many times. It's famous. So, no, it was about... Uh, you know, certain wines um, where we disagreed, but it was not a big disagreement. And I respect his taste and his selection. It's the Terry Thee selection, and it should be the Terry Thee selection, and, and that's why it's valuable, because it's it reflects his flavor. Uh, he doesn't select each and every one of my wines. He selects the ones that he likes best, and it's all well and good. As kind of the eyes and ears of Terry in the Mosul from the day-to-day -day basis, mm. how did you go about that job? I mean, did you think to yourself, I like this, so Terry will like this? Did you think I need to explain this one to Terry? I mean, what is the reality of picking things uh, to send to him? Well, Terry certainly tastes a lot and he scouts a lot and, and so do I. And then if we find something that's unique and that's 
wow. Then obviously we, we notify each other. He says, go to this place or get some samples from this guy. And, and then I usually taste them. And if they are really interesting, then we send samples over. Or we, we assemble them when he comes over. Or I find something that I find exciting and he tastes it. So it's always four eyes see more than two eyes. And that's how it works. So you always knew about the challenges in the American market because you'd seen it somewhat early on and you kind of had a familiar familiarity with it. Did it ever kind of surprise you how successful Terry was in penetrating with German wine into the American market? No, because I started in the dark days. <laughs> so German word was short of a course. Uh, German wine was short, short of a curse word in the, in the wine business over here in those days. And uh, sort of find... People in the know, they were there, but they were not the movers and shakers. They were like in the second tier, so to speak. They didn't have the big bucks. They were intellectuals. They had intellectual palates. Super interesting people to spend time with and to talk, but they were not mainstream big business. So it was labor of love. And so two people who enjoy the same labor of love together make a good team. And I think we were both surprised ourselves that the wines caught on. There was a lot of wow when the new generation of wines was put in front of people and they said, oh, this is German wine, this is different from what I knew. And we said, yeah, there is there is life beyond Liebfromage, there's life beyond the old style. And so it was a grassroots uh, movement and yeah, I'm, I'm proud to say that we were a big part of that grassroots movement. I basically put Ernie Lawson, Dr. Lawson, in, in the saddle um, and I mean, he grew big and, and he's a marketing genius and, and a few others. So that, uh, looking back, that was quite a success. And no, we did not expect that. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about your relationship with Terry is that every year he writes a catalog entry and he describes you, both your wines and you as a person, uh, usually in, in quite familiar, sometimes even sort of spiritual, intimate terms. How would you sum up Terry uh, from your perspective? Because that's something we don't necessarily always hear back. Terry is an enigma. Uh, He's unique in the sense that he travels between the cultures, if you will. He is, obviously, he likes baseball. He's a baseball buff. He's 100% American, but at the same time, he's very European. And he can read both minds, which is very important if you deal with uh, artisan producers. Um, he's a gifted taster. He's a super talented writer, and he can entertain he really, he's witty, he's fun to be around, and he enjoys the good times, be it good food, good wine, uh, and, and everything. The only thing, but I forgive him, he doesn't drink beer. <laughs> it's rare in the wine business not to drink beer. <laughs> that is true. We, we try and try. We've never gotten him to drink uh, a beer. So that's the ultimate challenge. So, I mean, let me ask you, because it, it looked like a period of time uh, in the 2000s, or maybe a little earlier even, when critics were really praising concentration. And it also coincided, now that we can kind of look back on this, with a time of global warming where concentration was happening naturally. Uh, and, you, and if you moved in a direction of concentration, you could often get quite a bit uh, pretty quickly. Um, but you didn't. And sometimes you made conscious efforts to not do it, I mean, very, very specifically choosing uh, certain vineyard sites to, to move into uh, that were maybe a little bit higher in altitude or elevation, and then uh, altering the picking. I wonder if you could kind of talk about some of those decisions you made. Well, one decision was certainly not made by me, but that was done by my late father, and that was a, a great decision. It basically, it was going back to the roots. Um, to give you an idea, in, in the top tier in Germany, uh, you will never make one picking run, or hardly ever. You will go with two bins and you will make two runs, sometimes three runs, always picking certain grapes at a time. Imagine a vine has the shaded side and the, the exposed side. So the grapes that are exposed are always way ahead of those that are in the back and are shaded. So you can selectively pick for a certain style of wine by picking certain grapes and leaving others. It's very labor-intensive, but you can fine-tune the wine and if you are in the point getting game obviously you can play with botrytis in order to tune up the wines uh, and and supercharge them and make them big and rich and and, and point getters and um, since we all live off of reputation and let's say 15 years ago there was this big race for points and everybody was selling points more than selling wines it was a trend to make the wines bigger richer sweeter which was 
not a good thing if you ask me because you had wines that you would taste but not drink and um, you would also rob the vineyard off of its fingerprint and in those days the, the term terroir became big and the horse named terroir was ridden almost to death and my father said look if you do three passes with two buckets and then you tell people this is terroir it's not true it's like you milk the cow and you skim the cream and then you sell it as whole milk but there's something missing so if you want to see the vineyard as a whole and the expression of what it can give leave it alone don't go through don't skim but pick it when it's best and pick it in one run and this was in 2003 that hot year and I said, okay, we'll try it. I, th I still think the selection made wine is, is superior. And he said, let's, let's try it. So we designated our best parcel in the Schlossberg vineyard, which is known by the name of Schmidt. Talk about Schmidt. Um, nobody touched it. And we picked it the second to last day of the harvest. And we did one picking run, very unusual, one bucket. Everything go went into the bins and into the press. And we made the wine separately and we compared it when it was ready to everything else. And we said, wow, this is more complex. This has more acidity, but at the same time hasn't lost richness. It's just longer and, and more impressive. And that was the birth year of our single block picked parcels, starting with Schmidt in the Schlossberg. And then we went to Rotlei, which is the best piece of uh, Sonnenwer. And then in 2008, we added Anrecht, which is the best piece of uh, uh, Imagine you have the slope and you take it's like my fist and the, the knuckle that sticks out and that's the most exposed. The ripest part is, is those three, uh, the three vineyards and those are our back to the roots block picked parcels. And it was not so much a commercial project, but really our aim was to see the red thread that runs through the terroir by non-interventionist, all fermented with wild yeast. We usually, 80, 80 plus percent of our wines go with uh, wild or indigenous yeast. And uh, in this case, it was really as little intervention as possible. So the vineyard speaks. And if we have like a dozen vintages under our belt to put them on the table and say, okay, let's see how they taste. Is there is there a, a red line running through them? Because we did not intervene. It's really the vineyard expressing itself. That was cool. That was exciting. And it's still going on. Um, do you find that as you've picked some of the more riper parcels inside of the vineyards that you, you control, that including green grapes has been kind of a natural counter to the ripeness that those parcels are uh, moving more towards in an era of global warming? I think that's becoming uh, common sense now. You don't push for the ultimate ripeness because then you push for way too much alcohol and the wines become big and fat and flabby. Um, so you, yes, you include more green grapes to give structure and acidity. Imagine you have no bones in the body. It'd be a, you know, a heap of meat and fat. So you need the bones, you need the green grapes and the acidity. That's, I think, trickling down into people's minds. And it's not bigger is better. No, it's structure. It's deliciousness, it's length of flavor, and it's also originality. Uh, and the or originality is, you know, wholesome. And this is why I believe in picking a whole vineyard and not just mm, selecting into oblivion and having, you know, 17 different variations uh, that, you know, that one vineyard can give. It's exciting for some, uh, but um, coming back to what I said initially, um, I want to sell the product, the fruit of the earth, if you will, of that vineyard as it comes. And if it's a top vineyard, it will give you a great product. And with more ripeness, with more sunshine, with more sugar in the grapes, uh, those less ripe grapes are a bonus, not, not something negative that needs to be weeded out. And what happens to uh, the grapes of Selbach Oster when they come to the winery? You mentioned that a portion of the wines are fermented with wild yeast. What is the process uh, behind the wines? We pick in small bins. The bins are dumped, not pumped, into the crusher, which is a very light crushing. Basically, only tears the skins uh, lightly open, so they bleed the juice. And then we press in pneumatic presses at a very low uh, pressure, settling by gravity. And then uh, the clear juice goes into the barrels. And depending on the vintage, we ferment between 70 and 90 percent with wild or indigenous yeast. If we have a high Botrytis vintage like 1990s, uh, sorry, 2006, where you have a lot of botrytis. Obviously, you have a little more uh, cultured yeast as a as a falling back line because it's 
you can seek to eliminate the gray rot, but uh, there's always a small percentage that might slip in, and so it's good to have a, a, a you know safety card. And um, like 2012, 90 plus percent was wild yeast because the grapes were perfect. Um, cool fermentation. That's the only modern technology that we apply. We can actually regulate the temperature in the tanks and, and even in the barrels by inserting coils. And we like to ferment at a modest temperature uh, because we believe modest means 14, 15 centigrade, not warmer. Um, because if you have a wild fermentation at a high temperature, you have a lot of carbonation. The carbonation needs to get out of the barrel, obviously, and you gas out a lot of aroma. And the aroma that you smell in the cellar, you no longer have in the wine. So a slower fermentation at cooler temperatures retains a lot of the primary fruit and a lot of the aroma. And that's what we look to uh, hold back in the wine. Then. We leave the wine on the lees for a long time. I am a firm believer in lees and lees contact, so we don't rack, we don't filter, except for the sweet wines, which will get one racking and one coarse uh, diatomaceous earth filtration. And then they just sit on the lees until shortly before bottling. It's Much of it is against what schools will teach you, i.e. wild yeast or not filtering, um, but we have not had a problem. The wines are very, very stable. We have low pHs, we have good acidity, it's a cool cellar. And it's also something, if you're in the business for several generations, there's a bounty of experience which is passed on from uh, one generation to the next. So I have learned from my forebears not to become nervous if certain things don't go, you know, down the regular alley. You don't need to panic or uh, become very hyperactive in the cellar. And this is something um, that is probably difficult if you start new because you need to gain experience. And if it runs wild, then people start to get nervous. And that's certainly an advantage of being in a family that has been making wine for a long time. So it's a very traditional hands-off um, winemaking process. And really, when you make Riesling, it's all about the fruit. It's the quality of the fruit. You cannot replace that in the cellar. You cannot add to that. You have to bring it home from the vineyard. And then you maintain it. So Riesling is something that we really associate with German wine. Is it one thing? Is it different things? What is German Riesling? German Riesling is the greatest white grape on earth. I'm biased and confess to that. But if you look into the wine books from the early 1900s till today, uh, there is, if it's not the top, it's on par with the other great white grape called Chardonnay. The difference between take Chardonnay and Riesling is Riesling is uniquely versatile. You can make it in every style, from bone dry to very sweet and everything in between. So you cannot put it into a certain category. And this is a blessing and a curse. So if you want to be on the safe side, you will buy a wine where you know what you're getting. If you don't know that, especially if you entertain or you're not 100% sure, you go the safe route, and the safe route is not Riesling. If, however, you're intellectually interested, if you appreciate nuances, I think Riesling is the greatest grape there is because you can find it from the driest with oysters to the sweetest with foie gras. You can find it from 7.5% alcohol up to 14% alcohol. And you will find it in all different uh, shades of green, so to speak. It is these, the grape that does not need makeup. This is why we don't use no oak. No forest needs to be chopped, no toasted oak. It's just the fruit. You can make it in stainless steel. You can make it in old fuda barrels, old oak barrels. And the grape really shows its true face without human influence. That's at least the, the, the traditional uh, winemaking approach. And then you get a, a beautiful, uh, inspirational array of smells and flavors that no other grapes can do like Riesling. It's floral when it's young and it tastes of fruit and it tastes of soil. And when we speak about minerality, Riesling is a grape where it's grown in the old world. It's on steep rocky slopes and the roots go deep down into the slopes. In our case, we've dug them out as, as deep as 40 feet deep. And you get that smell of wet stone. You get the smell of rain on a parched soil and, and also uh, trickles down into the flavor profile. And it's very exciting if you listen to your taste buds um, and you really pay homage to you know a wine drinking it slowly and just copying it down. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating experience. And then 
we already touched it. If you let the wine age, uh, you see how it changes. It's a live thing. And that is very, very exciting. And this is why I always say, um, you know, provocative in a sense, Riesling or great Riesling is something for intellectual palates. It's not for the faint of heart. You need to, you know, use your senses and, and your taste buds to learn about Rieslings. Once you do, you're, you know, hooked usually. And this is where you find a plethora of choices. And you find them for relatively little money. Since it's not mainstream, the prices are not so high. And uh, you can find fantastic values for money. Now comes the style. Many people think, oh, Riesling, it's sweet. Yes, there is sweet Riesling. But that's one shade of green. You can find medium dry Riesling. You can off dry Riesling. You can find bone dry Riesling. You just have to look at the label. Usually the alcohol tells you. If you see a low alcohol, expect some sugar. If you see a high alcohol, it's going to be dry. Forget about German nomenclature. Just the alcohol on the label will give you a very good hint. And then, of course, knowing the producer and the region is a guide like with any other wine uh, in, in the world. So Riesling is a much more... Uh, diverse animal than most people think. They just put it in the, in the sweet corner because they've had sweet Riesling. And um, I think they, they rob themselves of great experiences. Another thing about Riesling is it is a very fickle grape. It's like Pinot Noir. You cannot produce it in the same quality around the globe. For Pinot Noir, Burgundy is still the benchmark, even though you find very good Pinots in Oregon and some in California and some in New Zealand. But still, if you go to you know, the ultimate, uh, you know, desert island, uh, you would take a bottle of Burgundy Pinot Noir rather than, than other Pinot Noirs. And I, I dare say, and yes, I'm biased, uh, for a reason that is Germany, and it's the northern part of Germany, and it's the Mosel, Nahe, or the, the, the Rhine. Um, and so give it a try, be a little bit experimentative, ask your wine merchant, spend some money. You don't have to spend much, and you get great rewards. An homage to the taste buds. I love that phrase. You mentioned that you feel that the wines you make are often very long-lived, or at least that's what the goal is. Um, as a consumer, if I were to buy a 2012 German Riesling uh, when the opportunity presents itself, wh what should I be thinking about doing with that wine? Should I drink it in the first couple of years and then put it away? Should I drink it the whole time? Should I wait 20 years? What's the move? Good question. Um, tempting problem with Riesling is, and this is also unique, you can drink it anytime you want. There is different, you know, likes. For example, my wife likes young wines. I like them too, but I really dig old wines. There comes a point where she's, nah, it's not fresh enough for me. So I have to drink it myself, which is great because then I get more. Um, but um, you certainly see different um, aromatic profiles in Riesling. And this is something, again, that the, the, the average consumer doesn't know because the average white wine is low acid, high alcohol, uh, and you need to drink it cold and fast. And mm, the common notion is red wines age and white wines should be consumed young. It's, it's true for Pinot Grigio, it's true for many Chardonnays and for you know richer wines with less acidity. Uh, that being said, great white burgundy, I, I love and they, they age for a long time. But Riesling as a grape has, I would say, the greatest aging potential of all white grapes. If it's done well, if the vineyard is not overcropped, if the producer knows what he's doing, you get a beautiful acid of fruit and acidity. And that fruit acid balance, that yin-yang, uh, is really uh, something that keeps the wine going for a long time. You don't need alcohol to preserve. You need acidity and sugar. And this is why wines that have a little bit of residual sugar age longer than, than dry wines. And so my rule of thumb is Cabernet 15, Schwelleser 30, Auslaser 50 plus years. Uh, dry wines, I would say it's 8, 16, 20, yeah, a little shorter. Um, what changes is the color over time from pale to more golden. What changes is the impression of the fruit. It's very youthful, primary fruit, peach, apricot, apples, citrus, when they're young, honey, when there's botrytis. Uh, they will go through a dumb phase, which can start three years down the road or five years down the road. They will come out with a slightly different set of flavors, which is... Um, because the molecules change, and that change of molecules is fueled by oxidation. So that's also where the color turns a little more golden, and you get 
roasted bread, nuts, forest floor, vanilla, often, even though they're not aged in wood, um, beeswax, uh, smoke, uh, plus all the other fruits, but no more dried fruits. Beautiful, beautiful and exciting to see. So I recommend, if you ask me, 2012, buy three cases of Spätlöser from a good producer. Could be Selber Hoster. Um, <laughs> For instance. <laughs> yep, but there's there's plenty of others. And uh, so you have 30, uh, 36 bottles and then um, drink two each year or three and see how it progresses. Number one, you don't need to spend much money and you have tremendous fun tasting over time to see how the wine changes. We do that all the time and it's very, very exciting. And it's fantastic to be able to go back and, and pull a, an old Riesling uh, from the 80s or the 70s or even the early 90s, which is completely different from what you get in the stores right now with Young and Wild. Yeah. And they become super food wines because the sweetness retracts. The wines, even when they're sweet in their youth, will become less and less sweet organoleptically over time. So an Auslaser from the 1983 vintage will barely taste sweet anymore. And it's a fantastic wine with roast meats, for example. And do you think that that character has carried through to current wines? Like sometimes when I open up uh, older Mosel Rieslings from the 70s and 80s, I get the sense that with the change in climate that the wines are being made with a little bit more uh, sugar now, a little bit more weight, even if you're trying to go the opposite way. And I, it sometimes seems like maybe those lower weight auslaces that go so well with entrees mm -hmm. when they're 30 years old, I don't, I don't know. You tell me. Uh, are what we making now going to taste the same with duck in 30 years? Very good question. I don't think they'll taste the same. There is a good suspicion or likelihood that they will taste even better. Um, they have a little more meat on the bones. The yields are lower. Um, there's more concentration. So I suspect, and I hope I live the day, uh, to see those wines 30 years and older and to to make the comparison to the wines I knew uh, when I was younger and that were 30 years old at the time or that we're drinking now that are 30 years old, I suspect we'll be in for a treat. That's my suspicion. And what are recent vintages in the last, say, 10 years that you're particularly fond of in your own wines? Whew. There wasn't a dog in the last... I mean, that's another phenomenon. We have records going to the 1500s, not just we. I mean, the region has records to the 1500s and there have always been periods of sour grapes and sweet grapes and catastrophes and, uh, you know, time spans of seven, you know, the seven meager years and the seven fat years, you've seen that over and again. But uh, we have not seen anything like we, I have witnessed in the last 24 years. From 1988 through 2012, we've not had a bad vintage and that is a record. So, huh, 2001, fantastic. And, and drinking beautifully now. 2002, overlooked, but excellent. 2003, grossly misjudged because it was that hot year. The, the high-end 2003s are fabulous wines, but it has to be the high-end, Schwedler's Um 2004, classic, vintage, long-aged, delicious. 2005, probably the most perfect um, weight. Don't drink them now. Uh, beautiful uh, wines. 2006, Many people will view it as difficult, and it was very difficult to make because we had an abundance of botrytis, and you had to know what you were doing with the botrytis. But in my opinion, for sweet wines, one of the best vintages ever. Uh, it replaces 1976 as a benchmark for botrytis. Um, 2007, nice, very good vintage, very ripe, plush. 2008, the coolest. Uh, I would say that's the one that's the most typical of the old style with uh, a little more acidity, ripe but not overripe, and a lower alcohol level. So to me, that was would be described as the classic vintage of old style. Most recent comes 2009, beautiful, everything ripe, good acidity, good botrytis. Um, um, 2010, that was the biggest challenge and the biggest surprise. We didn't know what to make with the grapes when we saw the readings of acidity and sugar. The, the acidity was sky high, signaling unripe, and the sugars were sky high, saying super ripe. So we had no reference. Um, and um, many went to their fathers and grandfathers <laughs> to ask, what shall we do? And nobody had a comparison because either the acidity was high and the grapes were sour and no fruit, 
in, in a sense, i.e. bad grapes, or the other way around, high sugar, no acidity, and flabby. So in 10, those who made sweet wines, and I was one of them, we made a minute amount of dry wines, uh, made fantastic sweet wines, because you have this unique balance of, of scintillating acidity and, and brilliant sugars, which make crystal clear wines which have sweetness but you don't taste the sweetness so much those are long distance runners so i would say 2010 for sweet wines probably one of my most exciting vintages ever comes 11 beautiful plush everything good across the board we lost grapes due to a hailstorm in august so uh, i got a black eye in 2011 2012 extremely difficult start Think of 2013, another difficult start. So that was the backlash in terms of global warming. It was the opposite. We had a rather cool start. We had a very rainy May, very wet June. Uh, tremendous trouble in the vineyards with diseases. We lost a lot of grapes to downy mildew. And the bad weather lasted into July, and only in the second half of July did the weather change. If you would have asked me last year, uh, mid-July, I would have said two thumbs down. Weather changed, and then we had a picture-perfect August, September, October, and those three months make or break a vintage. And so, as if to make up for the difficult start, we had the most beautiful finish. And 2012, small crop, but delicious wines. Delicious wines. If you come today to the tasting, you'll, you'll see for yourself. And what is the potential for, we've talked a lot about product at wines, uh, Cabernet, Spreet, Lisa, Alice, Lisa, but what is the potential for truck and wines in the middle mosul? Very big. I like to make three exclamation marks. That's another, that's one bone of content Terry and I uh, were throwing at each other. Uh, Terry, justly so, because he had had many not so good dry mosul and dry German wines from the 70s and 80s when they were lean and mean. Had, uh, shall we say, he was lukewarm towards them. And so he was in his portfolio leaning towards Austria for dry wines and Germany for sweet wines. And he slowly started phasing in dry German wines, mostly from the Pfalz and, and, and other parts of Germany, and the token token from the Mosel. And I think um, old habits die hard, but the habit has died. Terry has come around. And I think with our learning curve and the, you know, better vintages, uh, the Mosel has made and is making tremendous token wines. And the beauty of those wines is we can make a dry Riesling with less than 13% alcohol and a mouthful of flavor, which is beautiful because you can drink those wines. You don't need to nibble them. You don't need to spoon them. You can drink them. And they are mineral and they're crisp and they're long-lived and they're delicious. And I'm very, very proud of the achievements part of the learning curve that we've made with the Trocken. So I believe there is great potential. However, um, this is not what the Mosel is famous for. It will always be a side market of the main market. And the main market is the balanced fruit acid uh, wine with uh, some fruitiness and some residual sugar without being obviously sweet. Speaking about learning curves, I feel like uh, because you're somewhat in a, a, a privileged position to understand both what happens every year in the American market and to stay in the Mosul all the time and, and really get a sense of who is doing cool things there that you help scout. Who is maybe uh, someone that you may have played a role in finding, or maybe not, that's not appreciated enough in the United States market, but that you feel is a, a, a stupendous agency in Germany? Um, there are many. It would be difficult to pinpoint one. There is a new generation of producers now who really love what they're doing. They're well-traveled, they're well-educated, and they their goal is to make uh, top-quality wines. So I would say the average uh, quality of German wines, state wines, and Negocium wines has made a big leap. So, I mean, you can still find bad wines. You don't need to work hard on that, but uh, the, the vast majority of what comes over here is, is delicious. Now, uh, discoveries, well, what I see, maybe not the right answer to your question, many people who are starting and many importers who are bringing new wineries are now reinventing the wheel and say, oh, it's round. Uh, obviously, you have the novelty factor. If, if you're in the press, you know, need to discover something, either a scandal or a new producer. But if you look at the German uh, estate wine scene, Many of the old guard, and if I consider myself old guard by now, um, 
are fine-tuning too. They're not resting on their laurels and they're going ahead and probably with a bit more experience and a little bit more acreage can be even more innovative, only that we don't make as big a noise about it. So I dare say that the whole German quality estates are as a whole innovative and on a quest to make wines even better every year. I include myself. We're constantly looking where we can fine-tune. Uh, we're going green. We do our, our farming has always been sustainable. We do a big proportion organic now. I will not become certified. I'm not political about this. I just do it because where it's feasible, we'll do it. And uh, it works well. And, um, you know, yields, we've gone down to very low yields. The grapes burst open, too much ripeness, too fat. So we're going back to giving a little more uh, and retaining a little more acidity and getting a little more bite. Um, wild yeast has always, always been a favorite of my grandfather, my father, myself, so we don't need to advocate that. Uh, old vines, this is something I have only recently started to put old vines or Alter Reben on the label, basically, because I see so many old vines on labels where I grin from ear to ear because I know the vineyard, and uh, for us it was a, a natural but since it's becoming something that people recognize, uh, we started with a couple of wines that we put old wines. And if, if I mean old wines, it's old wines, 60, 70, 80 years old. And I guess a question you may not get that often, but I'm kind of curious about. I mean, you have had a long uh, history of coming to the United States. Um, you, you are familiar with wine uh, broadly throughout the world. What do you think of American wines? I think American wines have made a huge development. I, my first visit to California was in 1983 on that trip. We uh, had friends in California who were in the wine business. I'm still good friends with a, a well-known California winery who I met back then where they were making wine almost in a, in a, in a, in a barn <laughs> uh, up on a hill on, on, on Sonoma Mountain. And... Um, to see the development from 1983 to, to now, uh, today is mind-boggling, mind-boggling. And also to see the quality leaps and also to see the learning ability. I remember there was a time in the 90s where everything was way too big. They had way too much oak. And it was like the wines were not, or I shouldn't say not, were, they were hard to drink because they were so big and they killed the food on the plate. and. They saw that and they backpedaled and they fine-tuned. And I think um, uh, it's a very dynamic uh, wine industry, especially the smaller producers, still family-owned, where you know people who know wine and like wine are at the helm and are making wine. They're fantastic wines. I think uh, the U.S. wine industry has really made their mark. And as a European wine producer, uh, I tip my hat and I recognize uh, the quality of American wines. Having said that, there's a lot of corporations, there's a lot of, in, I shouldn't say industrial, but mass market wine out there, which unfortunately uh, is in, in many restaurants and, change and uh, chains and is what's becoming the taste profile of, or the standard for many people who drink wine. And this is why, as a recent producer, I find the people who are, or have been brought up with this mainstream wine have uh, difficulty uh, recognizing and appreciating nuances. They have difficulties with wild flavors because they're not norm. Uh, and it's a pity because they huh, they forego a lot of pleasure just because they don't know it. And so I encourage, that's part of my quest, people to taste, taste, taste. That's what I do when I go to a restaurant, when I go to a winery, I will try to taste food or wines that I don't know myself. And, and I always ask for recommendations from the locals and that's the way to go. Because it sounds like from your perspective of seeing how corporate brands really damaged your own uh, market for the wines in both export and even sometimes in, in uh, domestic markets in Germany and uh, really led to an exodus of producers who are selling land that you are sending up a caution flag maybe about uh, other areas of the world that may rely too much on mainstream corporate uh, cautionary wine that's sold at a low price and billed as an entry level into the wine market. There always has to be, and this is something that I've learned too. I was a young Turk when I was younger and more hot-blooded after you lose your hair, you gain wisdom uh, and, and pounds. Um, you become more settled. <laughs> 
um, and you take a, shall we say, a more relaxed look at things. A, a, an animal, say a cow or a pig, doesn't exist, uh, consist of, of loins only. And sometimes people in the wine business talk and behave like there's only loin. And how much foie gras can you eat? I mean, there's time for hamburgers too. And um, so I respect a simple wine as long as it's delicious. It doesn't have to be a great wine. It can be a wonderful everyday wine for a budget as long as it's good. I'm out on a picnic or you know, spinning, bicycling, great. And as long as it has soul, as long as it has flavor and is genuine, I respect it. If it's mass market made like beer according to a formula, I detest it. And I'd rather drink beer. Um, fortunately, there is, you know, always ups and downs in the corporate world as well as uh, the small producers. Where there's too much corporate, there will always be a backlash and you will see small shops coming up. Same with baked goods, same with coffee, same with everything. And uh, I am a great believer in going to the little guy and, and tasting the little guy's food or beverage. Usually it's better and costs a little more, but it's worth every penny. Johannes Sobach, giving you a good a glimpse of what the German wine market is like both in the past and now. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank today. you, Levi. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.